Hello, and welcome to the History of the Cots, Episode 9, The Last Martyr. Before we start, I have a small announcement. I have written an article about my vision for this podcast and the Coptic identity. It can be found on CopticVoiceUS.com. I also wrote about what I'm trying to do, but more importantly, what I'm trying to avoid throughout the journey. I think it's a good read to orient you to the podcast, especially if you consider yourself a Copt. Coptic Voice has a lot of excellent material on all things Copt as well, so I encourage you to check it out. Anyway, with this out of the way, as a reminder, last time we stopped just before Diocletian famous edict in 303 AD that started the Great Persecution. For those who are not familiar with the Coptic cultural heritage, Diocletian in the Coptic conscience is a great villain who intended to exterminate Christianity and murder thousands of innocents with a particular zeal. On the other hand, for most modern historians, Diocletian is a great emperor and a reformer who pulled the Roman Empire from the brink of disaster. So now you're asking, which one is he? Well, he's kind of both. His actions were ultimately meant to stabilize an increasingly difficult to govern empire, but in doing so, it was necessary to try to exterminate all other forms of alternative institutions. So last week, the revolts of Coptos and and Alexandria were simply a result of powerful, rich cities with a degree of autonomy who did not welcome his reforms that was meant to centralize control and reduce their independence. But in addition to those cities, perhaps the biggest alternative institution to the palace was the church, which at this point had a well-defined hierarchy with the increasingly influential members. A massive church in front of the emperor palace in Nicomedia served as a daily reminder on the growing power of the church and probably annoyed Diocletian to no end. The threat of the church as an alternative power structure to the emperor was not the only reason Diocletian persecuted the Christians. Diocletian was a religious man. He believed in the Roman gods. He believed that if he advocated for them and restored their glory, they would bring him victory and prosperity. He was also a classic autocrat which meant that he aimed to regulate and unify how things should be done and preferred that a central government run from his palace be in charge of everything, including religion. From setting a list of maximum prices that should be charged on everything that you could think of, to deciding who can marry who, if Diocletian could regulate something, he did it. As an interesting side note, we can thank Diocletian for banning sibling marriage in Egypt, which up until this point of history was something that is acceptable socially and legally, but frowned upon among Christians and Jews. The zeal for religious uniformity and control was seen last week when the Manichians were eliminated as a significant movement within the empire. The big move for Christianity happened in 303 AD, when Diocletian and Galerius were both residing in an imperial palace in Nicomedia, in modern-day Turkey. Early Christian sources recounts how Galerius and Diocletian held council, where Galerius pushed hard for decisive action against the Christians, but Diocletian was much more reserved, 
and preferred a burge of the Christians from the civil government instead of Galeria's proposed mass murder. They, then they decided to, to consult the oracle of Abolo, and the oracle replied that an enemy of the divine religion, i.e. Christians, prevented him from giving counsel. In response, Diocletian published the first of many edicts targeting the Christian and started the Great Persecution. On February 23rd, 3 OD, the feast day of the pagan god of borders, Diocletian ordered the church of Nicomedia, as well as all the churches of the empire, be erased, Christian scripture to be burnt, and Christians to be purged from the civil government. As the year went on, the edicts kept coming. Next, the Christian clergy were to be arrested and forced to sacrifice using torture. Then the same order was extended to all Christians. By the end of the 303 AD, Diocletian became very ill, and Galerius assumed more power, and the persecution enforcement became more and more brutal. Things were especially dire in Egypt, where Diocletian had appointed a well-known anti-Christian prefect who enforced the edict strictly. Even so, the great persecution was intended to be enforced in the empire as a whole. In the same way, it was really left up to the local administrations on how to strictly apply it. So in the West, Constantine father essentially ignored it. And the other senior Augustus, Maximian, enforced it half-heartedly. But as Diocletian and Galerius were mainly based in the East, the persecution kept going with variable intensity for close to 10 years. In Egypt, the church leadership was Pope Peter responded the same way when the Decian persecution happened 50 years earlier. Pope Peter fled Alexandria and eventually Egypt altogether. He was constantly on a run between Syria and Palestine. Nonetheless, the church leadership suffered greatly, as four bishops were imprisoned and eventually died. As you can imagine, Questions were raised about Pope Peter's absence while bishops and lay Christians were being imprisoned and tortured. And unlike Pope Dionysius, he wasn't saved from being arrested in a miraculous way. Yet, as we will see shortly, those questions will be answered in a dramatic way that will enshrine his name in the Coptic conscience as one of its great heroes. But for now, due to his long absence and the imprisonment of four bishops, the bishop of Lycobolus, near modern-day Asyut in Upper Egypt, took matter into his own hands and ordained four new bishops to replace to those who were imprisoned. Now, this was a big deal. Never before have a bishop other than the bishop of Alexandria ordained bishops in Egypt. As far as the four imprisoned bishops and Bobitors are concerned, this action crossed the line and required a stern response a response that formed the first major schism in the Coptic Church. Bishop Miletus of Lycobolus was excommunicated by Bobbeter when word got out that he traveled to Alexandria and even ordained bishops there to care for the church while Bobbeter was absent. To make matter worse, Miletus ordained imprisoned Christians, i.e. confessors, which was a, which was a popular move and took a hard line against readmitting to the church 
those who denied the faith under the persecution. They still could get readmitted, but after long periods of with penance, which naturally appealed to hardline elements of the church. Both Peter and other hand published the first canons of the Coptic Church, which went on to form a foundation for the other Eastern churches, specifically dealing with what to do to those who so seek to be readmitted to the church. He was generally much more lenient. Thus, the initial power struggle about who can ordain bishops turned into a theological feud. Both sides were entrenched in their position and claimed the other a heretic. Communication between the factions became hostile and a rival church was established. This pattern is worth remembering. Anyway, Bob Peter's position eventually grew stronger, especially after his dramatic death. But the church founded by Miletus would be present in Egypt and would play a major role when Arius and San Athanasius battle for the theological soul of the empire. The feud with Miletus is what would lead Bobuter to return to Alexandria in 311 AD and start the chain of events that led to the story of the last martyr. To get from the great persecution to the last martyr, there's a few important stops in the way of our story so. First, almost out of nowhere, Diocletian abdicates his throne in 305 AD and quit politics and retires to a secluded villa. It was a bizarre turn of events. Historians explain the events on a range from Galerius made him do it to he was a noble and just emperor who always planned to abdicate. And of course, he was sick just a year prior, so maybe that has to do something with it. Either way, he left absolute power behind, and in his absence, a game of throne got started that will end with Constantine riding his figurative dragon and taking over as the sole ruler of the empire. During Diocletian reign, Egypt and the empire as a whole transformed in a major way that is perhaps comparable to when Augustus took over Egypt when the podcast started. Very briefly, the currency would change and Egypt no longer had its own monetary system but was incorporated into the empire. Egypt was also no longer one province but several. Government moved from a bare bones model to a full-fledged bureaucracy. Your profession was legally restricted to what your father did through highly regulated guilds. And finally, the emperor was trans transformed into an absolute monarch who was given the right to rule by the gods. In the transition between Diocletian and Constantine, Egypt is transformed from what is called Roman Egypt to Byzantine Egypt. Obviously, those are superficial labels, but nonetheless, they are useful historical markers. If you're interested in more details, i.e. life and government in Byzantine Egypt type of episodes, reach out to me and I'll make one. It will be similar to the Conquest 101 episode. Anyway, when Diocletian abdicated, he made his colleague in the West Maximian retire as well and raised the Caesars to the rank Augustus. Two new Caesars were adopted and a new Tatarchy was formed. I am not going to spend much time on the Game of Thrones that followed, even so it's fascinating. 
I recommend Mike Duncan's History of Rome for those interested. For this podcast, I will concentrate on events in Egypt for this week and the rise of Constantine next week. Galerius essentially took the position of Diocletian in the East, was his nephew Daza as his junior colleague, and the persecution in Egypt were kicked up a notch. The brochure on Christianity continued until 310 AD, when Galerius contracted an unpleasant, protracted, and an agonizing disease that was killing him very slowly. Perhaps due to his agonizing disease and the failure of persecution to eliminate Christianity after seven years, on his despite, Galerius issued an edict to end the persecution. It was his last act before his death in 311 AD. If you want to see divine intervention in this story, now would be a good time, but it wouldn't be the last. His edict of toleration was a surprising event. But in the superstitious world of the 4th century, all what Galerius saw was the success of his rival who tolerated Christianity, i.e. Constantine, and an agonizing distant failure for him. It won't take much for him to conclude the power of the Christian God and seize his assault. It won't take much for Constantine to take notice as well and advocate for the Christian God. But we're keeping that for next week. The text of the edict survive, and miraculously, Galerius not only stops the persecution, but instructs the churches should be returned, and that the Christians pray on his behalf and that of the empire. With Galerius's death, the situation in Egypt improved briefly, and Pope Peter returned to Alexandria and starts to consolidate the church leadership. But the peace won't last for long. The person who immediately inherited Galerius' power in Egypt was his nephew Daza, who, within six months of assuming power, renewed the persecution once more. This time, Bobriter would not flee. He could have escaped if he wanted to, but he didn't. He still had the support and the means in Alexandria to slip through, but after a decade of death and torture for his fellow Christians, he wanted the crown of martyrdom as it is referred to by the cops even until today. The story and its general outline is confirmed by various historical sources with generally no contradictions, but the level of details varies greatly. The Coptic history of the Vitriarchs provides the most detailed telling. I plan to use a summary of that version, not necessarily because it's the most accurate in the historical sense, but rather because it is the one that shaped the Coptic ideology of holy suffering. Peter was arrested in Alexandria when Daza renewed the persecution. He was in jail for some time, and during his imprisonment, he was allowed visitors, and two leading men of the city visited him, Achilles and Alexander. In his conversation with them, he went to great lengths to warn them from accepting an excommunicated Alexandrian priest by the name of Arius, and appointed as successors Achilles and Alexander to follow him. He also charged his flock to be aware of Miletus, the bishop of Lycobolus, and expressed to the world his thoughts on martyrdom, which, he exalted, 
and made it known that he went willingly and he desires to receive it. A short time after, the people of the city gathered in front of the prison to break him free and the soldiers were getting ready to respond violently. But Bo Peter, to avoid the bloodshed, told the soldiers to come to the back of the prison where there was a hole in the wall which they opened and went in and beheaded him. In another version of the events recorded, Bo Peter does not die in the prison, but requests that he goes to the church in Bucalia, the site where St. Mark was martyred, and he is beheaded there. However, before he is beheaded, he prays that he becomes the last martyr. Surprisingly, shortly after his death, Daz is defeated as part of the ongoing, very complicated, civil war that we'll talk about next week. And after he's defeated, the Edict of Milan, recognizing Christianity as legal religion, is signed, fulfilling his wish, at least until Islam comes around. We will have more to say about the Edict of Milan and the Civil War next week. But as you can imagine, after the martyrdom of Paul Peter, he became a hero in the Coptic conscience, the ideal shepherd and a type of figurative Christ, dying to save his people. That representation of the ideal martyr bishop added another foundation to the social construct of the Coptic Church. Not only its founder, St. Mark, had been martyred, but also now one of its patriarchs. The call of holy suffering is no longer a hollow ideology, but backed and supported by St. Peter, the seal of martyrs. After Bob Peter does, he was followed by Bob Achilles, who despite the warning from Bob Peter, readmits Arius to the church, with major consequences for the entire empire. Arius will be a major player in the Cod's story for the next century or so. Shortly after readmitting Arius, Bob Achilles dies, and he's followed by Bob Alexander, the second of the leading men who visited Bob Peter in prison. Now, before going on to the story of Constantine, St. Athanasius, and Arius, I would like to briefly go over the state of Egypt's religious identity in a period just prior to Constantine, specifically answering questions like how many of the Egyptians were Christians when paganism disappeared, and how did the average pagan Egyptian feel about the persecution. To get specific figures on how many Christians were in Egypt in the early 4th century is essentially a matter of educated guesses and speculation. But, good arguments have been made that the figure was about 50% of the whole population and essentially rose to something like 90% by the end of the 4th century. But just because Christianity was making inroads, it did not necessarily mean that paganism died in the 4th century. The last pagan temple in Egypt was destroyed in 535 AD, about 200 years after Christianity became the official religion of the empire. In fairness so, that temple was open for a long time because of Nubian protection and support, not necessarily because it had native Egyptian support. The Egyptian gods have been dying slowly since the Roman annexed Egypt, and by the time St. Athanasius was the bishop of Alexandria, 
we can safely say that he was seen as a leading figure by the vast majority of Egyptians. Lastly, the Egyptian dislike of Diocletian and Galerius went beyond religion and was multifactorial. They hated the new tax system devised by Diocletian, they hated the brutal suppression of revolts, and they hated the loss of whatever limited local autonomy that they had. There are several accounts recorded of pagan Egyptians protecting and hiding their Christian neighbors, either just to despite Diocletian, or more likely out of common decency and solidarity. Now the big question is, how many Copts have died in the Great Persecution? Well, no one was really keeping track. The Coptics in Exerium mentions a number of 840,000, which would be about 25% or so of Egypt's whole population at this point, which is a huge estimate. On the other hand, the history of the patriarchs in the story of Bobeter mentions 660 martyrs, which is a very low number, and probably was for Alexandria and for this specific year only. There is also some sources that estimate a number of about 144,000. So, the best answer, next to we don't really know, is that it is somewhere between 660 and 840,000. I will end this week by mentioning that in 311 AD, the year Pope Peter was martyred, a man who has been living in seclusion in an abandoned Roman fort for 20 years by now, came to Alexandria, confessing his Christianity and wanted to be the next martyr. But perhaps due to his obscurity, or winning enforcement with Daza busy in his civil war, he was left alone. This man was St. Antony, the father of monasticism. His fame will eventually grow and his story will reach all the corners of the empire. He will start a powerful movement that is vital to the Coptic identity and our story, monasticism. I plan to make a bonus episode at some point on the early monks of Egypt and their influence on the development of monasticism. Speaking of bonus episodes, at some point during this week, the first bonus episode recounting the flight of the Holy Family into Egypt and the significance of that event will be published. I am aiming for Wednesday. Next week, it will be a whole new chapter in the history of the Copts. A golden age of sorts, where the influence of the Coptic Church will reach its peak inside and outside Egypt. But before we get there, we will give Constantine his due and see how he changed the empire. Thank you for listening, farewell, and until next week.